You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Acts chapter 12, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 12, we, uh, we're going to wrap up this section of our study in Acts next week. And for the next four weeks, we'll be in the book of Hosea. And then we'll come back to the book of Acts and pick it up in chapter 13. So Acts chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 1. I want to read all the way through this because um, I want you to get the, the flow of the narrative of what Luke is giving us here. Remember, Luke is writing, give us a, a faithful account of what the Holy Spirit did through the New Testament church. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it says, About that time, Herod, this is Herod Agrippa I, I'll come back to that in just a minute, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. That's also uh, another way of saying the Passover. And when he had seized him, that's Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So King Herod is planning to kill Peter the same way that he killed James. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. There is a house church that is meeting the mother of John Mark, uh, and she's the, she's the owner of the house. John Mark is there, and there's a group of people who've gathered to pray for Peter. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and, along, and, and went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. That's James the less, the half-brother of Jesus, who is leading the Jerusalem church, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. When my wife and I uh, were first married, I got to meet uh, and got to know really well one of her pastors uh, that she had as she was growing up. 
and uh, just a phenomenal, amazing man. Um, and I got to know him, especially uh, when God began to deal with me and call me into ministry. And one day I was, uh, this is after uh, I had left secular work and began working full-time as an associate pastor. I was at his home, and uh, I was there visiting, and, and he had a study in his house where he had a desk and books. And, and he was telling me about his prayer life, which I was very interested to hear. This man began preaching when he was 13 years old. And this man had been preaching for 70 years. That's how many years he'd been in ministry. He had pastored several churches, and any church that he went to, he would stay at for long periods of time. Had a lot of deep respect for this man, a man who knew what it means to abide in Christ day in and day out. And he was telling me about his study, and in his study, there was an old wooden chair that was sitting over in one corner, kind of diagonally from his desk. And uh, Pastor Clark described to me how that during times of prayer, that he would turn and face that chair and imagine that Jesus is sitting in that chair. And that he would sit there for hours on end and get into God's word and have a conversation with Jesus. And that chair represented where Jesus sat. And not only would he talk to Jesus and bear his soul to Christ, but he would, he would listen to Christ and listen through God's word and through the Holy Spirit. And that has stuck with me all these years. I've never forgotten it. In this, in this section that we've been in, this middle section of Acts, we, what we're going to begin to see is that the, the focus is pulling back from Jerusalem and is beginning to focus more on the Gentiles. We've seen the gospel go to Samaria. We've seen the gospel go to Antioch. We're going to now see the gospel when we come back and start in chapter 13. We're going to see the gospel through the, through the ministry of Paul. We're going to see the gospel go to places like Antioch, Ephesus, uh, Philippi, Macedonia, the Macedonian area, Macedonian churches, to Corinth, all the way to Athens. And we'll find out that Paul had intentions of taking the gospel all the way to Spain. So the gospel's spreading, and, and, and less emphasis is going to be on the church of Jerusalem. Less emphasis is going to be on Peter and John, and more emphasis is going to be put on Paul and the people that he runs with and the people that God brings into his path as he plants churches all over Asia Minor and beyond. Last week we talked about these four key ingredients that the church just keeps coming back to in the book of Acts. That is the proclamation of God's word, that that is central to everything the early church is doing, that, that prayer is a central ingredient to what the church is doing, and, and not just not just generic prayers, but they're praying that the Holy Spirit would work through them and in them to accomplish the mission that God had put before them. It also required people to be obedient. These, these people we see in the early church, they were radically obedient to what God had called them to do, so much so that there would be people who would lose their life for their faith in Jesus. And then we also see just, a, just an absolute perseverance day in, day out, sharing the gospel with anyone they came in contact with. In this, final, in this final sermon in this series, we're trying to bridge the gap between the Jerusalem church and what's going to happen next with Paul and the Gentiles. And what we have to recognize, and I hope you've already seen this, that, that all the way up until this point, we see the, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. This is not just Peter's great leadership ability. This is not just the apostles and they're such great leaders that they've been able to start a movement 
that has gained momentum and has now turned into something that is spreading like wildfire. You've got to see that, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit through people who are obedient. And what we've seen over and over again is the New Testament church's commitment to prayer. And that's what we're going to see. It's interesting that, that in chapter 12, we're going to end up going right back to where we began in that upper room with the disciples. And what were they doing there before the Holy Spirit fell? They were praying. After, after Peter's sermon in Acts 2, and all these 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and they were beginning to be discipled, what were they taught? How to pray. So over and over again, we've seen this consistency. But I've got a question for you, and maybe this is a question you've had, but you've never really voiced it because you didn't want to sound maybe irreverent. But have you ever wondered what prayer actually does? Those prayers that you're praying, uh, that you're offering to God, have you ever stopped to think, what are we accomplishing in prayer? Does prayer change the mind of God? In other words, when we pray that God changes from one path to another based on the prayers and the requests that we have? Or is it that, that God changes our circumstances, that, that God intervenes in our life, in the circumstances of our life, and he, and he does change those circumstances based off of his will? Maybe you've come to the conclusion that because God hasn't answered you in a while or didn't answer you in a particular set of circumstances that, that God just doesn't answer prayers anymore. Take a look at chapter 12, verse 1. King Herod, Herod Agrippa I, he is a grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was one of the most revered kings of the Jewish people. He had spread his empire far and wide and had an enormous amount of power. And the reason we don't have a lot of mention of Herod Agrippa's father is because Herod the Great killed his own son because he threatened the throne. So we have Herod the Great and his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. Later on in the book of Acts, we're going to get introduced to Herod Agrippa II. And this particular king is wanting to influence and wanting to have a great and powerful kingdom. He has influence with Rome and he has influence with the Jews and he wants that to increase. And what better way to do that than to kill a common enemy of both the Romans and the Jews? And who would that be? Those people who call Jesus Messiah and follow him as their king. That both threatened the Caesars. Romans didn't like it, the Jewish people didn't like it, and this particular king wants to take an opportunity to build his power and his influence. And how does he do it? Well, he arrests James, the brother of John. He's, James is one of the sons of thunder that we were introduced to way back in the Gospels where Jesus calls James and John to leave their fishing nets and follow him. James, the brother of John, is brought out in front of the Jews and King Herod Agrippa I takes a sword and kills James in cold blood. Some historians say that more than likely, King Agrippa decapitated James. Some other historians say that he would have stuck the sword through him. Either way, we come to the same result, that the first apostle of the church has been martyred for his faith in front of the Jews. And notice what happens. The Jews are happy that the fact that, that one of their enemies has been killed and this turns Herod into a guy who wants to seek more and more approval. So what does he do? He arrests Peter. 
one of the ringleaders of this movement of the way, arrests Peter and has him put in prison with the intentions of killing him just like he killed James. I think it's ironic that at the same time, the Jewish people are celebrating the Passover, which is their freedom from a tyrant, a Pharaoh who had held them in slavery, that Passover is the celebration of their freedom, God's intervention in setting them free, while at the same time, King Agrippa is acting like a tyrant by putting a man in jail that has done nothing wrong and intends to kill him. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, right about the time that Herod was going to bring Peter out and make a display of him for his own resume and his own influence, an angel is sent by God into the prison. Also, at the same exact time that Peter's in prison, the church has gathered at John Mark's house, and they are gathered, and they are praying, and probably not only were they praying for Peter, but I wonder if they were also praying for James. I wonder if in all of this chaos, the church has gathered together, and they're doing the only thing they know to do, and that's to pray. So about that time, an angel appears in the prison Peter, get this image, Peter is asleep and he's chained to some guards. There are several guards. The Bible says that there are four squads of soldiers that have been assigned to guard one man. King Herod believes that he's in control. Agrippa thinks that he's got everything just the way he wants it. But of course, every king that we see in the Bible who thinks they're in control finds out pretty quickly that they're not. An angel shows up and this angel has to nudge Peter. I always find it amazing that Peter's asleep. I, I, I wouldn't have been able to sleep a minute. Peter's asleep. This angel wakes Peter up, and as Peter stands up, the chains fall off of him. He, he gets his cloak on, gets his robe on, and the angel's like, come on, let's go. This angel leads Peter right by all of these guards. Peter doesn't know if he's having a vision, if he's having a dream, or if this is real. I would imagine that, that Peter was in such a deep sleep and he wakes up, he doesn't know what's going on. And as they're walking out of the prison, he's wiping the sleep out of his eyes. They get all the way outside the prison to the gate leading into the city and the gates just open by themselves. And all of a sudden, Peter begins to realize that this is actually happening, that he is actually being set free from prison by an angel. So Peter shakes the cobwebs out of his head. It says in verse 11 that he came to himself. He says, now that I am sure that the Lord has sent the angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting? They were expecting another execution. But God has intervened. And at the time God intervenes, it just so happens to be that there's a gathering of people praying for Peter. Verse 12. When Peter realizes this, he he heads out to the house of Mary. The first thought that Peter has is, I've got to get to the church. I've got to get to the body of Christ. He, he, I don't know if he was aware that they were praying. Apparently he was. And he starts making his way to John Mark's house. John Mark, apparently his family had a little bit of wealth. And they would have had a home that had a, a courtyard and maybe a wall that surrounded it with a gate. And and Peter goes to that gate and begins to bang on that gate. Now, Peter knows that it's just a matter of time before the guards realize that he's not there. And there's going to be an all-points bulletin put out to arrest Peter. So Peter's got to act quickly, and he's out banging on this gate. While on the inside, the church is gathered, and they're praying that God would intervene. And about that time, a servant girl by the name of Rhoda hears something. 
she hears something and she comes out and apparently Rhoda knew Peter and had heard his voice because she recognizes Peter, recognizes his voice. She goes to the gate, realizes that it's Peter and she's so overwhelmed, so overjoyed that God has intervened. She doesn't even let Peter in. She runs back into the church. I think it'd have been awesome if she'd have just opened the gate and said, come on with me. But instead she's so overwhelmed she just runs back into the church where they're meeting. And she begins to proclaim to everyone, hey guys, Peter is outside at the gate. We've been praying and God has answered and God has shown up at the gate through Peter. He's out there. It's the most awesome thing I've ever seen. You know what their response was? You're out of your mind. I've got that underlined, highlighted with arrows pointing to it because I just think it's astounding. This church, this body of believers has been gathered at John Mark's home and they've been praying for God to intervene. They've been praying bold prayers, no doubt, that, that God would spare Peter. And when God spares Peter and he's at the gate, they don't even believe he's out there, which makes me wonder, they may be making bold requests of God, but did they expect a bold answer? I don't think they did. They believe it's an angel. They. They believe that each person had a guardian angel, and that a guardian angel looked like the person that, that was, they were assigned to. But the answer to their prayer is at the gate, and they weren't expecting it. And I don't know why. All I can say is that in my walk with Christ, there have been times that I have offered prayers to God while there was a seed of doubt in my heart. Maybe because God didn't intervene in some other circumstance that I expected him to, or, or maybe the way that he intervened didn't fit up with my will and my plan. And, and therefore, and listen, Satan is very subtle with doubt. He, he's very good at it. Remember, this is what caused the fall was doubt about God's goodness. That was one part of the problem with the fall in the garden. And Satan has been using that tactic ever since. And there can be a seed of doubt. I wonder, I wonder if the church body was wondering why James died. I have no doubt in my mind, even though the text doesn't say it directly, I have no doubt in my mind that James, the brother of John, was being prayed for. I don't know how quick this happened. I don't know how quick they, they took James and put him to death. It seems like it was pretty quick, but no doubt if the church heard about it, the church was praying for him. And they were probably offering the same prayers for James that they were offering for Peter. So we've got a problem here. Why does James have to die by the sword while Peter gets to walk free? Maybe that's the source of some doubt down deep inside of you that you will never vocalize because you're ashamed of it. But down deep inside, down somewhere back in your past, God answers somebody else's prayer in the same circumstance you were in, but God didn't answer the same way in your life, and you've become a little bit bitter or angry, and you still go through the motions of praying. Maybe they're far and in between. Maybe it's just a meal here and a meal there. Prayer is not something that is important because deep down you're not really sure if God hears or God answers. Why does Peter get to go back and live some more years while James 
died at the end of a sword. I don't want to use this as like a cop-out. I don't want to use this as like something to just kind of divert our attention. But the fact is that God being in control and God knows all things and he knows tomorrow and next year and 100 years from now and that he knows every possible outcome, that that God's ways are mysterious and the ways that he answers, sometimes it's mysterious. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it it doesn't add up in our minds, in our human minds, why God seems to do something over here and do something different in our circumstances when we're all asking for the same thing. And, And you may go the rest of your life and not know the answer to that. But this church is praying a bold prayer, but they're not looking for a bold response. And we've got to ask why that is. Is, is our prayers to God, is, this, is the purpose of prayer to, to finagle God and or paint him into a corner and to force him to do our will? And if he doesn't do what we want, when we want it, on our time frame, then we just quit? Can we be confident that when we pray that God not only hears, but that God is at work? Can we be confident of that? Turn over to 1 John. 1 John 5, 1 John, written by James' brother. Many years later, after James' death, James and John, the sons of thunder, who were uh, right at Jesus' side, John is going to write this in 1 John 5, and I want you to hear what he says. Verse 14, 1 John 5. John says this, and this is the confidence. You see that word confidence? It has the idea of a, of a sure foundation. Just like this building is built on concrete and steel and it's on a sure foundation. John says that we have confidence, steadfastness, stability, that our, our feet is on something solid. Our faith, our faith is in something that doesn't change, that we can trust. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Did you get that? Just in case you didn't, let's, let's hit that again. If you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God is, in, is engaged. God is listening. God hears, and he's acting on behalf of the petitions that we are making known to God. Well, Wait a minute, Pastor, I don't see that. Well, he's at work thousands of ways in your life right now. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean he's not at work. Look at what he says in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, so in other words, it flows from the idea that if God hears our prayers and whatever we ask and according to his will, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We have them. In other words, when God hears and God answers, It'll be a tangible answer. I've got a, a book over there on my desk where I write out my prayer request and I can show you page after page after page after page after page of God's direct intervention in my life and in the life of this body called I part. This church was praying bold prayers. They weren't really expecting a bold answer because when the answer is standing at the gate, They completely, completely reject the idea. Could it be 
Could it be that God has answered your prayers? Could it be that the answer's been standing at the gate all along and, and we didn't even see it, didn't even consider the fact that, that God is at work and instead of giving God glory for that answer standing at our gate knocking, we talk about luck or we talk about coincidence, we talk about happenstance when in fact God heard and answered. How many prayers have we just discounted to luck and sheer happenstance? I think we'll slow down long enough begin to look for God at work, you'll find Him. Has God met you at the gate with a direct answer that you completely overlooked? Did you know that the main purpose of prayer is not asking for things? I know that seems kind of counterproductive in what we've been talking about and what Luke reveals here. But did you know that, that prayer as its primary purpose is not asking God for things? That the primary purpose of prayer is worship and adoration? Did you know that, that prayer is an act of worship and an act of surrender and an act of adoration to God? And yes, God invites us to ask. He invites us to make petitions. He invites us to stand in the gap for those who are sick or in need or broken. He invites us to do that. Do that. And God, being a good father, welcomes us through what Jesus Christ did for us to make those petitions known to him. And he's a good father. He hears and he answers. But the primary purpose of prayer is to worship and adore, to spend time with your creator, to know his heart, to love him, to realize all that he's brought you from, to realize once again the incredible grace of God that's been poured out into your life and has forgiven you of much so that then we can go out into the world and forgive others much. Warren Worsby, a theologian, writes commentaries, uh, devotional books. You may have some of his books. He's got a great quote here. It says, quote, The immediate purpose of prayer is the accomplishing of God's will on earth. The ultimate purpose of prayer is the eternal glory of God. It's twofold. Prayer has as its purpose to glorify and honor God, but it also has its purpose to fulfill the mission, God's will upon this earth. As we've been loved, we love others. As we've been loved well, we love others well. As we've been given grace, we extend grace. As we've been forgiven, we forgive. And Jesus said that we're going to know them by that kind of, we're going to be known as people who've been called out by that kind of love. And that's exactly what our world needs today in this moment this moment of chaos, God's people set apart by the blood of Christ, separated from the world, to live in the world through love, grace, joy, mercy. It starts on your street with your neighbor. It starts on your cul-de-sac in your, in your neck of the woods, wherever you live. It starts there. And the difference you can make right there by doing those things is untold. But it begins, our effectiveness in our ministry and in our mission begins with an empty chair sitting in a room across from us where we recognize that we are called to abide in Christ, that Christ welcomes us into his presence, and it's there we find love and grace and mercy and the opportunity to live that out in a fallen, broken The New Testament church in its early days understood that. I don't know 
what's in your heart about the idea of prayer. Maybe in your heart you're thinking that, well, God's already ordained everything. He's already set everything in motion. So, so if I can't change the mind of God, then what's the point in praying? And the reason I say that we don't change the mind of God is that if I change my mind, let's say I'm going to do, I'm going to do this thing, course A. I'm going to do this thing, letter A. And I find out that, that my plans are a mess and, and A doesn't work out, then I go to plan B. That means that I failed in plan A and I've got to go to plan B. Well, see, God is perfect in all of his ways. There is no failure in God. So there is no plan A and a backup plan. It's only plan A and plan A is perfect. And there's, and there's no reason for God to turn away from that plan because it's perfect. That's why John says we pray in his will, not ours. But if the New Testament is going to make any sense at all, we have to understand that God, in fact, does intervene in our circumstances. And he does change things in accordance to his will when we call upon his name. And whether God answers something the way you wanted it or whether it worked out the way you wanted it to, and down in your heart there's been a seed of doubt that's been planted, and you've been only going through the ritual of prayer and there's no relationship there, God is calling you back. God is calling you back to that place where you're abiding in him day in and day out. That's the only way we're going to be able to live in this world, as salt and light and love. Father in heaven, We need your intervention. We need your help. Because our world is broken. And Father, it's becoming very evident to me that the hatred and the anger is growing exponentially day in and day out. And Father, your people called by your name, set apart by Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on for us, that we're adopted as sons and daughters into your family, I really do believe that we can make a difference on our street, in our community, in our county, in our world. I really believe that. The power of your word, the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us, and the grace that we've received. Father, that is a changed life. And we're called to be agents of change in a community. So Father, let it begin. Let it begin in the household of God. Not a building but a family, not an address, but a people who've been redeemed and reconciled to their creator, who walk in love, who walk in relationship, not ritual, and have their eyes set on a community in a world that desperately needs no hope. Father, I believe it's time that we set that chair up. We have a long conversation with you about what's going on in our heart. So Father, I pray that whether listening across the internet or here this morning, Father, we would take that time, spend some time with you, hear from you, and live for you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.